Welcome to That Said. I am Michael Zeldin. On today's show, we will be speaking with Carl Bernstein about his memoir, Chasing History, A Kid in the Newsroom, coming out in paperback in January 2023. This is part one of my two-part conversation with Carl. Carl is the Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist for public service for his and Bob Woodward's coverage of the Watergate story, which led to the resignation of President Richard Nixon and set a new standard for investigative reporting. He is the author of five books, including All the President's Men, biographies of Pope John Paul II and Hillary Clinton, and his family's experience during the McCarthy era. Additionally, Carl is an on-air CNN political analyst and contributing editor at Vanity Fair. Carl, welcome to That Said. Thanks. Good to be with you. So you wrote this wonderful book, Chasing History, A Kid in the Newsroom. Tell us, if you would, why did you decide to write this book at this point in your career? I've always wanted to write this book. First of all, pretty much all I know about journalism and also about life, uh, or most of it, uh, I learned uh, from age 16 to 21, which is really my apprenticeship, so to speak, at a wonderful newspaper. I was lucky enough at age 16 in the capital of the United States to get the best seat in the country. And the next five years, in many ways, are the most joyous of my life at the Washington Star. I learned both about journalism, reporting, the country, aspects of the country that I, that I could not have imagined otherwise. And when I finished the book, I, and there's not a word in the book except in, in an epilogue about anything relating to Watergate or anything that happened after age 21. So it is, as you put it, a coming-of-age tale, but it's a coming-of-age tale about a profession, about uh, a subject which resonates today, which is the press. And also when I finished it, I realized it's – it fits hand in glove with all the president's men. It's almost like a, a prequel or a, a manual in some ways for what we did in Watergate. There's that quote on the back cover from Bob that explains some of that. But also I'd always wanted to tell his story about this lucky kid, the luckiest kid ever who gets to do this stuff. You know, I, I went to work at the Washington Star uh, in August of 1960. Jack Kennedy was running against Richard Nixon for president of the United States. Dwight Eisenhower was in the closing days of his presidency. And to my utter total amazement, we can talk about it in a little bit, within a month, I was covering these things in a strange way. I mean, it was part of like I was a full-fledged reporter, but I, I was going to see Ike as the president of the United States and uh, saw him as uh, when he was president. And, covered Jack Kennedy's inaugural in a, in a funny way. But we can get to that later. But it's also about who I am, and I guess you can see how I got here uh, to some extent from this formative, maybe most formative period of, of, of my life. You joined the Washington Star at age 16. Before we jump into the iterations you've had there, tell us what was the Washington Star? The Washington Star was probably the greatest afternoon newspaper in America. It was the opposition paper to the Washington Post. In 1960, it was a better newspaper than the Washington Post. We took great delight uh, at the Star in, in beating the Washington Post. We kind of had a, a belief that was well-founded that the Washington Post at the time uh, really bled its function as a non-opinionated newspaper with the oldest values of the profession had to some extent been ignored at the Post in terms of, of a kind of agenda in its newspapers, whereas the Star really had a very strict separation of, quote, church and state. The function of the editorial page had nothing to do with uh, what was in the news columns. The Star had uh, incredible number of great reporters who were my mentors, my teachers. 
the star was red, like the post, by everybody who was important in, in, in Washington. But we did a better job of covering the news without fear or favor. As it had. And you write of it that it was known, and I remember reading, I, I moved to Washington. It was also known as the, quote, conservative, end quote, newspaper, certainly compared to the Washington Post. It went back to Lincoln's time. It had supported Lincoln when he ran for, for president. And its origins were very tied up uh, with the history of the country and its continuation through the next century. I was very tied up with the history of the country. And my five years at the Star bracket the Civil War by exactly 100 years later. And, uh, so, and that really figures in the texture of the book because I grew up, Washington is the city of my birth. I'm a second-generation native of Washington, D.C. My mom's from Washington. And that, too, informs the whole book that, Yes, I'm working for this great newspaper that's a national newspaper on one hand. It's also a great, great local newspaper. And I knew, and I learned even more, alleyways and back streets of, of the city, which I already knew some of from growing up there till I was 16. But also you can see the jump in that, too, from the star to Watergate. I mean, what Woodward and I did, you know, we were local reporters. We weren't national reporters. And the methodology that we used in doing the Watergate story, you can see its origins in this period at the star, knocking on doors, kind of perseverance, uh, multiple sources, all that stuff I learned uh, at the star. And Bob came very naturally to it, and it figures the, in what we did. The star, as I remember it, because I moved to D.C. in 69, so it was still alive and well, the star, I know the evening star building downtown, and we would wait for the various editions in the afternoon. But I always thought about that paper as it was a fact-based reporting by specialized reporters. Their crime reporters were the best in D.C. All of them had their area of deep specialization, which I think what made the paper such a good read for me. Was that your thinking about it too, Carl? To some extent, I certainly think that's probably the case on the national side of the paper. Sure, you had a Supreme Court uh, reporter who knew the law and covered the courts. You had uh, people who, Jerry O'Leary Sr., had been covering Capitol Hill since the Coolidge administration, if you can imagine such a thing. And his son, Jerry O'Leary Jr., was an incredible rewrite man who also became a national reporter as well and made Latin America and Cuba and, and Castro his, his specialty. On the local side, yeah, we had, you know, all three papers in the town at the time. There was an afternoon tabloid called the Washington Daily News, which was a Scripps Howard paper. The Star was, again, a local paper owned by uh, families that had been in Washington since uh, – the, really the last part of the 19th century and some of them even farther back than that. Uh, the Post was owned by Eugene Meyer, who had come to Washington uh, in early in the 20th century and uh, had been on, he was a major financier in the country. Big, big difference in the background to the ownership. And, and the star's roots were so deep in, into the local uh, power structure of the city, including its business community, et cetera, et cetera. But your point about specialties in covering the local news, I would say that, you know, that half of the local staff were general assignment reporters. That, you know, we're sent out to do damn near anything, and we're, and we're really capable of being great, we call them leg men, leg women, Meaning you go out on a story uh, that was breaking and, you know, a, a murder, a robbery, explosion. You know, you had 25, 30 people that could do that with, use the word expertise, who, who were great at it and knew how to work with cops, knew how to get the story, and, and probably uh, better in most respects than, than people at the Washington Post. And 
except for maybe Tom Wolf. I, you, I don't say it in the book, but but you know, I was I was sixteen, seventeen years old, and I get sent to fires, and and sometimes there would be this guy named Tom Wolf for the Washington Post who would be, be covering these fires, and it, and it was one reason he got the hell out of the Washington Post because he, the Post had no idea, or maybe not some idea, of how great he was, and. Uh, Tom went from there to the New York Herald Tribune. And uh, just a little aside, it's not in the book, actually. But, uh, I was thinking in terms of the dedicated reporters, particularly the police reporters, Ted Crown and Walter Gold, who you spend some time talking about, their knowledge of and ability to acquire information from police and understanding what police reports were all about, I thought made them just unique in the coverage of local reporting? Gold, well, Walter Gold was unique and uh, in that he combined his knowledge of firefighting and, and top, he was a member of the Bethesda Chevy Chase Fire and Rescue Squad, volunteer rescue squad. His father was the, probably the most popular columnist in the city at the Washington Post. Uh, Bill Gold wrote this column, a local column that, Everybody in town followed about, you know, just neighborhood news and, and the births of dogs and cats of people in various neighborhoods. It was, it was just this an amalgam of local stuff and lore that, that was very popular. But Walter had gone totally the opposite way of his father. He, he was about 10 years older than I and grew up in the suburbs, uh, not far from where, where I Grew up from the time I was 11 to 16, 17. I, I was born in, in Washington and grew up in the city itself until I was 11. We moved to Silver Spring, Maryland, and adjacent to the district. But Waller was this amazing character who uh, he would have a, he, a fireman's hat. He had this big old Pontiac that uh, he had specially fitted out to uh, serve his profession. He On his desk, you would see copies of firefighting magazine, and uh, I would go out with him at night uh, when I was working as a copy boy and, and watch Walter with, with this amazing finesse go up to, you know, the first homicide I ever went to was was with Walter, and uh, he'd go up to the cops and kind of sidle up there, and, and he knew them, he knew the lieutenants, and he would get information. He also carried something I learned, he carried a, a thermos full of coffee and brought donuts for the cops, especially in the winter, uh, who would be at, at the scene. And, but he treated the cops not as, as distant sources, but rather as human beings. And he went deep, you know, he, he let them explain what they knew and what they were seeing. didn't interrupt them. All these things I took in. I, and I learned a lot from, from Walter about making sources, about uh, allowing people to tell their own truth and not interrupting them uh, and uh, being a good listener and and then asking the right questions and being persevering. You know, if it was really a big homicide and uh, after, after talking to the guys on the street, Walter go back to police headquarters and uh, and go up to the homicide department. Uh, he worked what was called night police. Uh, Ted Crown, the other reporter you mentioned, uh, was a great local character. He talked like this, and he was talking under his nose. He talked in, and he sounded, uh, 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 and everybody tried to imitate him like that. And uh, it was kind of inimitable, but uh, we all we all tried. He also, uh, in, in many ways, uh, as, as were many, I think, people who covered police in those days and before were, had a racist element to his character that I described. But the Washington Post also had a great police reporter there. And, and there were three guys at police headquarters who were fabulous characters. Crown from the, uh, the Star, Al Lewis from the Washington Post. Johnny Birch from the Washington Daily News. Between them, they've been there 100 years uh, when I went down there. And, uh, you know, they had 25, 30 years' experience each. And uh, Lewis, uh, as, as you might know, 
Uh, he was a great, great reporter for the Post. He, and the first uh, Watergate byline carries the byline Alfred E. Lewis, who was covering police uh, headquarters the, the night of the, uh, the day after the burglary. And uh, Woodward and I were in a little box at the bottom saying other reporters who contributed to this story were, but the byline on the first story is Alfred E. Lewis. Carl, let's start with how you get to the Washington Star in the first place. You write that your dad helped you get the interview at the Washington Star because, quote, he rightly feared for your future at age 16. So tell us about your interview and and what transpired thereafter. Well, there was reason that my father feared for my my future. uh, It's age 16. I I had uh, one foot in the pool hall, one foot in the juvenile court, and about a toe in the classroom. And my father understood that, that I had some facility for writing because the only exams I could pass were kind of essay exams. And uh, if it required real knowledge, it, it certainly wasn't there because I, I was kind of AWOL from school uh, a good deal of the time, uh, as I say, in the pool hall and elsewhere. And he knew, my father knew uh, the government, uh, federal government columnist uh, of the Washington Star because he had covered with great fairness, even though it was a conservative paper in the town, uh, this government columnist had covered a strike by my father's union. My father's an organizer for uh, the United Federal Workers, United Public Workers, which was government workers union. And this guy had covered uh, with great fairness the strike that my father's union uh, had had to help people who work at the government printing office and other federal departments get a, a decent salary, maybe up to a dollar an hour or something like that. So my father called him and, and said, hey, could you get my son an interview for some kind of entry-level job? And this guy's name was Joe Young, and uh, Young said, yeah, I'll, I'll try it. Let me talk to him. And, so I, and in the book, I talk about how I bought a special suit for my interview with the star. I went to a, a Washington institution called No Label Louis, uh, where you could buy suits and for about a third of the cost that you would, you would pay in the department stores. And, and a lot of fancy people went there. There was a, a big poster when you went inside the store and, uh, with Lyndon Johnson. With in a no-label Louis suit, uh, Johnson was then the majority leader of the Senate, and so I had this cream-colored suit that I bought uh, at no-label Louis, and I went to see Joe Young, and he took me to the office of a man named Rudolph Kaufman, who was a member of the owning family, the Kaufman family of the Star, and he was the production editor. He pretty much, even though his he'd been put out to pasture because he really didn't have a lot of newspapering skills. And so they made him the production editor, uh, which was kind of a make-work job. And he was in charge of hiring the copy boys, and among other things. But he also handled outreach to local charities, uh, of which the star, again, being part of the pillar of, of the community of Washington, D.C., the local community, the star sponsored all these charities, in grammar school, uh, I was a, a boy patrol, you know, crossing patrol at the Tenley Circle. And the boy patrols all over the city were sponsored by, by the Washington Star. And um, just to give you an idea of their civic notions. And so I, I was ushered in to see this guy, Rudy Kaufman, and he asked me, you know, why did, why, why did I want to be a, Copy boy, and I, I, I said, you know, I can write a little bit, and I had a journalism course in the 10th grade, and, and he kept looking at me in my cream-colored suit, and uh, he said, boy, I thought that, that Joe Young said you were, you were junior in high school, because I was about five foot three and I had a lot of freckles. And I said, no, yes, sir, I am. I'm going to graduate next year. And he said, boy, why, why don't you come back next year? And uh, so I really, you know, I'd really like to do this. And uh, 
I could do it while I go to school. And he, he said, come back next, next year, boy, but I'll look at your, your application again. And then he took me in a different door to leave than, than the one I had come into his office from. He opened the door and it opened into the newsroom. And here was this vast acreage, it looked like, uh, certainly in a, in a child's mind. It, uh, I mean, it was huge, it seemed. And there were people running around like they were on the most urgent errands in the nation. They were hollering copy. They were at their desk typing away. They were smoking cigarettes, talking to each other. The people on what I learned later was the national desk saying, you know, hurry up and get me that story uh, on what's going on in the Senate today. And it, there was this commotion, but it was this commotion was all very purposeful, I could see. And then this man, Rudy Kaufman, walked me down the center aisle of all this activity that separated the two parts of the newsroom with reporters on either side of this aisle, and they were all going at it with whatever the hell it was they did. They were typing. Uh, they were looking down at, at books to, to find addresses that needed to be in their stories, which I didn't know at the time. And then he took me uh, a Another, a copy boy came with a dolly full of newspapers, uh, right off the press. And, and he pulled one out and gave it to me. It was still warm, right off the press and with a red streak down the side. And in that moment, I knew I wanted to be a newspaper man. And so I didn't hear from him the next couple of days. So I, I came and I sat outside his office. And I could see he, he didn't want any part of this bother, uh, but he'd let me go into his office. And he said, he said, boy, uh, when are you going to graduate from high school? I said, next year. He said, well, come back in. He said it again. I said, and I said, well, I really, you know, I'd really love to come to work here. I'll do anything you want me to do. I uh, said, boy, can you type? And I said, oh, yes, Mr. Kaufman. I, and I didn't tell him I had taken typing in 10th grade. Uh, with the girls in the home economics class because I was sick of, of all those shop classes and I'd learned to type and I could type very fast. I could type 90 words a minute, corrected, which was really fast. And uh, he said, boy, go down there and, and take a typing test. Uh, have the nurse, the, the company nurse, can you imagine a, a newspaper had a nurse in those days? Have a company nurse take a look at you and, uh, I'll get back to you. But I could tell he still wasn't very interested. And uh, didn't hear from him. So I went went down there again, sat outside his office. And he lets me into his office and starts to go through some papers that show. Uh, and then he sees, he sees the typing test. And he said, boy, you didn't tell me you could type like that. I said, oh, yeah, I can, I can type by 90 words a minute. And I said, let me get back to you. And I got a call the next day. He also said, boy, you type faster than a dictationist here. And I don't know what the hell a dictationist was. It was the next step up from copy boy and a really important step because dictationist not only took dictation with a headset on from the reporters out in the field in these five editions a day that, that Michael mentioned, uh, but they also got to cover stories and wrote obituaries, and that was the next step up. But Mr. Kaufman said, you know, he got a call saying, come to work on Monday, and uh, based on my typing, and I got hired at $29 a week, and that was the beginning of my newspaper career. So what is a copy boy, Carl? What were your first responsibilities? I close my eyes and I see that newsroom, and it's the scene right out of a movie. So tell us about the copy boy and how the, the reporters would scream out copy and what your responsibilities were. Well, a copy boy was a kind of factotum who did anything. He did anything and everything that he, he was asked to do. It, it, because it was an afternoon paper uh, with five editions a day, uh, the reporters would be typing their stories on deadline. And they were done in what was called takes. You would write several paragraphs of a story, and then it had to get up to the desk as you were writing it to be edited a piece at a time because you were up against the deadline, five deadlines a day. Nothing like a morning paper at the Washington Post where 
you know, during the daytime, reporters had all day to do their their stories and, and into the early evening. This was done, you know, while the presses were running. So uh, one of the things that, you know, a reporter would type three paragraphs, yell copy and hold a piece of copy up in the air. Uh, and a copy boy of whom there were 10, 12 working at a time, one of the copy boys would run up, grab it. If it were destined for the national desk, you take it to the national desk or the city desk, hand it to the editor on that particular desk. There was an early copy boy shift from 6 a.m. to 2 p.m. If you worked that shift, the uh, first thing that happened is you, you'd get 15, 20 papers from uh, up and down the East Coast because the, the later papers from the Midwest arrived later in the day. You would then dole out to all, all of the editors. Those takes of copy were typed on what we called books uh, that were six-ply. You'd put this carbon paper uh, under the pieces of newsprint that was used to type on eight and a half by 11, and you would make these carbon paper books, and uh, it would then all the reporters would have a stack of them. Uh, you would get uh, the first way I met my mentor, Sid Epstein, the city, great city editor of, of the Star, who, you know, along with Ben Bradley, the two great figures in my life uh, as, as a reporter, these two amazing editors, totally the opposite in temperament of each other and background. Uh, Sid Epstein at the Star, who I owe an awful lot to. Still get choked up about it. And the first time I, you know, I he, he saw me, I was working. That's the other thing, that the copy boys would work in the wire room where you had 25 teletype machines. The news from all over the world would come into these teletype machines, and the copy boys would rip off stories. There are two of them working in the wire room all the time. They would rip off story again, take by take, run it to the appropriate editor. And so I was working in the wire room my first week there, and Sid Epstein, the city editor, sat, you know, 10 paces from the wire room. And he said, copy, and he motioned to me with a crook of his finger, and, and he said, Go upstairs and uh, get me a, a geyser roll with butter on it and coffee regular and in the company cafeteria. And then for my wife, who was the, uh, the great fashion editor in the women's section at the Post, and, and he said, uh, you know, toasted bagel for her, etc. And, and, and so I, that's how I first got this revered and feared city editor of the Washington Star, but the copy boys kept the place running. They really did because the mechanical aspects of putting out the newspaper, the reporters really didn't give a damn about But you had to bridge that gap between the sort of mechanical and, and the editorial. And so back to your question, Michael, the first day I went to work there, the head copy boy, who was about 45 years old or 40 years old, which can be awful old to be calling somebody a boy, but he was the head copy boy, a man named Phil Kelly. Uh, he took me down that same aisle. He gave me a tour very slowly of, of the newsroom and explained how it worked to me. And, and he was a wonderful, wonderful man. Again, he gave me opportunities that, that were amazing when you think of it in retrospect. And this first day at work, he took me down that same center aisle and pointed out this reporter or that one, that one. And then we got to three desks that were near each other. And there was nobody at the desk. And he pointed to one. He said, this desk, and there was little rows in the, in the midst of this tumbled shambles of a place with, with all this craziness going on. And uh, everybody, you know, books and, and, you know, just objects strewn all over all the reporter's desk. And there was this little island of this perfect desk kept with little rows in it uh, in the days. And he said, that's Mary McGurry's desk. She's the greatest writer on a newspaper uh, probably in the country. And uh, okay. And he, later, of course, Mary McGurry, uh, she eventually came to the Washington Post after the star folded. But she was the greatest writer probably for a newspaper as well as brought a particular mindset to her 
reporting. She had covered the Army McCarthy hearing. She was a librarian at the Star and the editor of the paper. Uh, she had written book reviews and things for the Star, and the editor of the paper thought that she had a peculiarly female, in some ways, point of view to cover Joe McCarthy. It was a genius play, and her coverage of the Army McCarthy hearings was amazing, and that was the beginning of her great, great career. So Phil Kelly said, that's her desk there. And he took me to the next desk, and he said, that desk is where Mary Lou Werner sits. And uh, she won the Pulitzer last year for covering massive resistance to desegregation in the schools of Virginia. And uh, you got to remember that this is only six years after Brown versus Board of Education and the state of Virginia had closed down most of its schools rather than integrate. And Mary Lou Werner, he explained to me, had won a Pulitzer for her coverage of this ugly, awful, massive resistance. He took me to the next desk and he said, this next desk belongs to, to Miriam Ottenberg. And uh, she won the Pulitzer this year for investigative reporting about crooked used car rackets and all kinds of other stuff. And uh, I knew the name Ottenberg because it, the Ottenberg family was the, uh, owned the biggest uh, baking company in Washington. It, it's uh, basically sold seeded rye bread to Jewish people <laughs> in Washington. Uh, but that team went back. Uh, the bakery went way back to early in the century. But Miriam Ottenberg not only won a Pulitzer, she was the first woman to go on on the, the staff of Star in the newsroom. And, and she had gone on it in, in 1937, uh, actually. And uh, it turned out that she and my mother were classmates uh, in high school and, and knew each other a little bit. Imagine these first three people that are brought to my attention are women. All three of them had Pulitzers eventually. Mary got a Pulitzer at the Washington Post, partly for what she wrote about Watergate. You write about them, and I think this is so instructive in your career as a newspaper person. You write of them that they were remarkable because of the way they chose what constituted news, which facts means to highlight, and the context they conveyed. And I'd like you to talk about that, because I think what was so brilliant about your writing and what remains brilliant about your writing is what you determined to be news, facts, scenes to highlight, and the context that they convey. And I'd like you to talk about your writing a bit and the importance of those three things. Well, back to the fact that, that pretty much everything I know about reporting, I learned at the Star. Let me say one of the things, though, that I learned at the Washington Post was what happens when a great, great newspaper backs up its reporters when you're in the trenches and the chips are down. And and, uh, that came from the Washington Post. And Bob and I were the beneficiaries of that extraordinary uh, backing that we had. But at at the Star, the first thing I think that I started to realize was that the most important thing that, that in many ways that a reporter and a newspaper do is to determine what is news. What is important? What is it that you, the stories you want to cover and then how do you cover them? Uh, and what, you know, what is it that you think is relevant? But the basic decision of what is news is fundamental. I mean, take it to today. Take it to Trump and look at what Bob has done in his books. Look what I've done, you know, CNN and deciding what is news about Trump. And early on, Nixon, the same thing. What was was it about Watergate that we decided was really important, that this was not some third-rate burglary as the White House would have you believe or wanted us to believe, but rather that that we could see, hey, what the White House was saying didn't make any sense from what we were finding out in knocking on doors. All that 
Same thing learned at the star. What is important? What is news? And the star had a great sense of that. And so, so that was a starting point. That's sort of the question, which is what you learned in these early days was to determine what are the facts, how to highlight them and put them in the context of the events that you were covering. Well, the other thing that you know, I learned at the start is, is that in, in the reporters and, and I guess the editors of Star had a phrase that sort of that they would use saying, you know, that we're here to get as close to the truth as possible. And then Woodward and I started to use that. When, and we were asked early on in an interview about what we were doing with our stories and uh, about a year in because we didn't do any publicity or anything like that, but I think we've, been, we've gotten some kind of newspaper guild award or something in, for our coverage of the first year of Watergate. And uh, and we were asked, well, what is it? And, and we called it the best obtainable version of the truth. And Bob and myself have used that phrase for the next 50 years. It's a half century since Watergate now. Yeah. And, and but that concept came from the star, and that phrase – elaborated on what, what I had been told at Star. But the other thing in this book that I think is the essential sentence in chasing history, a kid in the newsroom, and I stress that word kid because that's what it's about, this kid who gets to see and do all these amazing things, you know, 16, 17, 18 years old until I'm 21. But the most important line in the book, aside from the thing about best attainable version of the truth, is the truth is not neutral. And, and I learned that at the star from great reporters covering civil rights in the South. And um, they were writing these amazing stories about the horrors of what was happening in the South to civil, civil rights workers going on freedom rides to, from the North to the South. And uh, we're helping to get, register people in Mississippi, Alabama, Georgia to vote because in those days, black voters, uh, potential voters were kept from voting by, by all kinds of impediments. And imagine back to what is news. What is news 50 years later? One of our two political parties has committed itself not to enlarging the democratic process of voting for president of the United States and voting period, but has made it a single element of its existence and success to keep people from voting. That's the definition of what is news. And one of the things that's happened today is enough reporters recognized what was happening with the Republican Party and Donald Trump, obviously, but it predates Donald Trump, a party dedicated to keeping people from voting in the greatest democracy, supposedly, in the world. Uh, what is news? That gets back to it. So, what, so, And early on, I relate the story here. And, you know, let, let's go back to what is news. A lynch, you know, uh, and not, not just what is news. It goes back to the question of the truth is not neutral. A lynching is not neutral. You don't cover a lynching from the point of view of bystanders except to describe what they're doing, which is a big part of the story, yes, but but the, you know, the coverage is not about about treating the two sides of the story with some kind of equality. Uh, no, the truth is not neutral very often. And so in, in my second year at the Star, I, I think second or third, there were civil rights workers going down to, to Mississippi from the north. And one of them was named Schwerner. And I was sent by the city editor to National Airport to meet Mrs. Schwerner, the wife of one of those civil rights workers who was missing. And she was going to go to the Justice Department. She was 21 years old, just a little older than I was. And she was going to go to the Justice Department uh, and then see the President of the United States because her husband and two other civil rights workers were missing in Mississippi, Schwerner, Cheney, Goodman. 
were their names. And she went to, I covered her all day, and tiny woman, maybe five feet tall. And she went to see the assistant attorney general of the United States and then went to see Lyndon Johnson. And she came out of that meeting with Johnson and said, he's not doing enough. The President of the United States is really derelict in what he's doing here. Why don't we have more people looking for these three missing men who are down there trying to register voters? Really courageous woman. Two weeks later, her husband, Mickey Schwerner, Goodman, Daniel Schwerner and Goodman were found dead, buried under the levee in Mississippi, shot in the head. Took my Chevy to the levee, but the levee was dry. That's what that verse is about. And uh, again, get emotional about it. It's a a singular day in, in my life speaking to this woman who was desperate to find her husband. And, and one reporter said it, that when she came out, of, there was a press conference she had over at Howard University after she'd met with the president. And one of the reporters asked, do you think your husband is alive? And uh, she just said, I don't know. What is news? It's not neutral. And let me say one more thing about it, because I think, and I learned this at the Star, the Star prided itself on being fair in its coverage, but not splitting the difference between two sides of the story. If one side, repertorially, you would found out one side had no merit and was composed of, of lies or dishonesty or misrepresentation. You didn't give 50% of the story to, uh, there was this myth of objectivity has developed over the past, uh, half century or no, last century. And, uh, you know, the papers and news reports should be quote objective. Deciding what is news, covering stories in which context is, you mentioned Michael, is an essential element. That's the most subjective of acts. There's nothing objective and scientific uh, and precision about it. And, and I learned that very often. And I'll give this example. I guess I learned it at the start. Suppose there's a robbery at the local bank. And a guy goes in with a gun, points it at the teller, says, here's a bag, stuff all the cash you got in there, and uh, runs out the door. Puts his gun in his pocket, disappears. The cops can't find him. But there's a videotape of the robbery. And a month later, they finally figure out who this guy is. And they find him upstate, uh, hanging out, you know, with his cousins in this place. And he says, I've been here for the last month. And no, I wasn't anywhere near the bank. I, you know, I've been here for a month. And uh, relatives say the same thing. And he gets himself a lawyer and says, my client was up here. DA and shows it to the press. He's got the videotape. Definitely this guy with a gun. You're going to give 50% of that story to be objective to the alibi? You're going to give 90% to what's on the videotape and then say his cousin said upstate he was there. And yet you've got timestamp on the videotape. That's subjective. It's not, you know. You do that story 90% in 10. You got no obligation to go 50-50. Yeah. And, and I think that that 50-50 business has been a grave mistake that we haven't said publicly and challenged the basic premise of that. We have to be fair. We have to be judicious. We have to give people an opportunity to explain their side. And then we make a determination based on what else we've learned, how much to give to that explanation and how many doors we've knocked on it. No, you don't automatically say, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, we give 50% to the murderer and we give 50% uh, to the victim. I don't think so, if, if you know who the murderer is. We saw that, Carl, with their two good sides in Charlottesville story. They weren't two good that's sides. Good, that's right. That's, I think that's right. Uh, and, in fact, the other side of the story in Charlottesville was how Trump's reaction and how was that event enabled 
and uh, by people in the political process. You know, but we see it all the time. You write that when you arrived at the paper at the Star, there was no question but that civil rights was what you wanted to cover in all of its manifestations. And you write compellingly about that period of time, particularly with the August 28th March on Washington and how that was reported. 1963. Yeah. So can you talk a little bit about that? Because I thought that was really interesting. Well, the March on Washington, obviously what's in some ways remembered about the March on Washington is the great speech that Martin Luther King gave there, where I've been to the top of the mountain, etc. It's at the height of the civil rights revolution in this country. And I, one, it's an interesting example of, of look, reporters have feelings and, and, you know, they're not automatons. And it, it, as far as I was concerned, it was, it was in many ways the most emotional and memorable day of, in my life in terms of uh, up to that point covering anything. Uh, and, and we can talk about eight weeks later what happened. And, you know, my parents had been very involved in the civil rights movement. They, you know, I grew up in Jim Crow, Washington. I went to segregated public schools in the capital of the United States. People have no idea, very few people, that the schools and the nation's capital were segregated by law until the day of the Brown decision in 1954. And interestingly enough, the companion case to Brown uh, is Bowling versus Sharp, which is about the District of Columbia school system, because Brown doesn't apply to Washington, D.C., because Brown applies only to the states. And so Thurgood Marshall and others who were petitioning the Supreme Court I knew that there had to be a case for the District of Columbia because our schools were segregated. And uh, that case had to, decided at exactly the same moment. And the, the opinions were written side by side, ending legal segregation in public education in the United States. I was in sixth grade when my grammar school was integrated and the first Negro as it was the term at the time that was used, both by blacks and whites. The first black student was when I was in the middle of the sixth grade. Black people couldn't eat in the restaurants downtown in the capital of the United States, except for Union Station, because it was railroad station, was a federal facility, government cafeterias, and one cafeteria downtown called Shoals. Wonderful place. It was owned by a man named Evan Scholl. Black people could sit down. Black people could eat at the lunch counters downtown if they stood, but they couldn't sit at the counter. And so uh, when I was a kid, my father's union, black leaders, white leaders uh, of various aspects of the community started doing what we called sit downs at the, at the lunch counters downtown. And I would go, uh, would I have a black kid next to me, and, and we'd sit at the lunch counter. Nelson's was the name of one of the places, and, and we'd sit there, and we wouldn't get served because we were black and white together. And uh, eventually, the, the restaurants were were desegregated by law, partly because of these demonstrations and the attorney for. The, quote, demonstrators, who were left-wing people on the white side of it, by and large, my parents included. This great lawyer found a law passed during Reconstruction ordering desegregation of public facilities in the District of Columbia. And the Supreme Court upheld that law passed in the 1870s. And that's how the Restaurants in Washington were were integrated, but so meanwhile we have in 1963 these demonstrations in the South trying to get people to register to vote. People are being killed, churches are being burned, and almost spontaneously, leaders, including Martin Luther King, including the 
head of the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters who were black men who tended to the sleeping cars on the railroads, great part of the union movement, the leaders of of all the major denominations, uh, church, synagogues, unions, got together and said, we have to have this march. And the symbol of the march was a black and white hand clasped together. Uh, they were on buttons and everything. And, and it was the biggest demonstration in the history of the country at the time, uh, I believe. Uh, close to 200,000 people. And there's great worry that there would be violence. And, and of course, you know, Joan Baez sang, Bob Dylan, great musicians of the time. Uh, there was a moral force to this, black and white together. And um, I, I was kind of a, a leg man who, early in the day, uh, took notes on what was happening. That's interesting. Carl, we're just about out of time of part one of our two-part conversation. But before we end, can you read to us from your book your final observations about the march on Washington and the marchers themselves, please? Uh, I had gotten to the Washington Monument grounds on my way to the office, and I stopped to take notes and talk to people who were arriving, particularly Black people from all over the country, and they're starting to gather and uh, and what I wrote in the book is is reflected also in the notes I took that day and gave to uh, the reporters who were writing the story itself. And in the book, I write, what struck me most was the quiet determination of the people, their words and attitudes, expectant and fervent, but also at ease and even gentle. They projected an enormous moral dignity, as if everyone understood this to be the culmination of a drama that had been building for a long time. Many carried signs. We march for integrated schools. Freedom now. The United Auto Workers save jobs and freedom for every American. Baptist Ministers Conference in Washington, D.C., Freedom 63. We demand equal rights now. We demand decent housing now. Jim Crow must go. We shall overcome. Truth shall let us free. It's so interesting. The book is called Chasing History, A Kid in the Newsroom. Carl, I look forward to part two of our conversation next week. Thank you so much for joining me today. It's great to be with you. That Said is produced by Compro and the Museum of Public Relations. Theme music by Sam Post. Please let us know your thoughts by writing to us at thatsaidzeldin at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening. For That Said, I'm Michael Zeldin.